Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to all you happy warriors. Thanks so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, thank you also for everything that so many of you do in promoting it, whether you send out URLs or you tell like-minded people about the show, uh, because the, the more happy warriors we have in our community, the more effective a community it really is. And uh, what is a happy warrior? A happy warrior is a person um, who is symmetrical. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, we know that in terms of, of human beauty and human good looks, for men and for women, symmetry is quite important. In other words, if uh, one were to draw a vertical line down the center of one's face, um, symmetry means that both sides of the face are identical. This, of course, is not true for most of us. You only have to uh, take a photograph of your own face and then hold a mirror vertically at the center line down the, the middle of your nose between your eyes and look first at the left side of the picture and then the right side of the picture and although I'm quite sure that every happy warrior is an incredibly beautiful person um, you will probably find as I most certainly do that you really are looking at two different faces for most of us but um, for people known for their good looks, and those are people who usually uh, are um, acting in, in movies or on television, uh, symmetry is important. Well, symmetry is also important in the makeup of our personalities, in terms of success that we would all like to enjoy. And what I mean by that is that no one aspect of our development is so emphasized to such an extent that all the others tend to wither and die. And so we speak about the importance of your five F's. What are the five F's? The five F's are the five areas of life that if they're good, if you're in good shape on your five F's, you really have nothing to complain about. What are the five F's? Uh, in no order at all, because they're all equally important. Uh, fitness, right? Physical health, that's an important one. Finances is an important one. Uh, friendship is an important one. Faith is an important one. Family is an important All those five. And so if you are in great shape financially, you, you don't have financial stress, and you've got a wonderful family life, uh, you have a, a spouse who loves you and whom you love. You might be lucky enough to have children and you have a, an integrated family. Uh, you also have friendships and your relationship with the boss is in good shape and your physical health is good. There's nothing to complain about. The problem is, of course, that uh, so many of us tend to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really focused on uh, fitness and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I used to live in Los Angeles, California, there were more uh, gyms within easy reach of my home than there were synagogues or churches. Uh, there were actually more gyms than there were supermarkets. I mean, it was like a tremendous emphasis on fitness. Well, 
what can sometimes happen for people who are very emphasized on physical health and they only eat organic food and they only eat locally sourced food and they only eat uh, uh, vegetarian food they really are focused on physical fitness there's nothing wrong with that as long as you are equally focused on family and finance and friendships and faith uh, there are some people who are very focused on finance and they say, when I've made some money, then I'll have time to focus on family and friends. It doesn't work that way. And that is one of the most important lessons that any happy warrior can absorb into his soul. You actually need to be able to work on all five all the time so as that you are symmetrical, so as your development in each of these five areas moves and progresses at exactly the same rate. You're working on all of them all the time. And uh, uh, today what I wanted to do is answer the question that many of you have written to me, which is what on earth does faith have to do with finance? Um, you know, maybe I, I do, maybe I don't, maybe I have a belief, maybe I don't, maybe I uh, attend worship service, maybe I don't, maybe I own a Bible, maybe I don't, but none of that is relevant to my urgent desire and need to acquire finance, to acquire revenue, to increase my income. That's what I work on. And uh, what I want to try and suggest to you in today's show, that um, the faith side of it is actually very important. At other times, I've spoken about uh, why the family side of it is so important. Uh, naturally, there are outliers. Uh, we all know of people, particularly young men who've done very well in tech without families. Uh, it's true, there are outliers. And I remember running into the actor George Burns while I was living in Los Angeles at the, I think it was called the Hillside Country Club. I may have that wrong. But uh, I was there as a guest and George Burns was there as well. And uh, I was introduced. And he was, of course, smoking, smoking a cigar. And um, uh, just by way of conversation during our chat, I asked uh, how many. He smokes about three or four cigars a day. Now, at the time I met him, he was, if not a hundred, very close to a hundred years old. Look, there are people who smoke and who live to be a hundred years old, but in general, it's probably not a good idea. And so, if you want to succeed financially, it's not impossible that if you ignore family and you ignore faith and you ignore everything else, it's possible you might, but the chances are not with you. Uh, you're, you uh, increase the probability of your success by developing all the five Fs. They are all part of an integrated system. And so I thought what we might do is let's start off by examining a dollar bill. Okay. And there's uh, there are a few interesting things about the dollar bill, but the one I want to focus on is the one. That's right, one. I want to, you know, why don't you take a dollar bill out? If you're, if you're in the United States of America, take out a dollar bill. But everything I'm saying is relevant to you no matter where you are. And um, the last show uh, resulted in quite a lot of people writing to tell me where they were listening from, including, by the way, um, several people listening from Ukraine. 
and uh, and you know god bless them and and be with them they should stay safe and everything should should be okay for them uh people from many different countries uh, philippines uh, we had this week um many people from argentina and brazil uh, people from Poland, had a number of people from Poland, somebody from Hungary. So wherever you are, this is relevant. What is there about a dollar bill? Well, um, what I'm going to point out is that uh, on one side, right, the, the side where there is a portrait, uh, you will see in each corner there is a number one. So that is four ones. And then I want you to turn over the dollar bill and in each corner of the reverse side, this is the side where you'll see a pyramid in on this side, in each corner, there's another number one and written over the digit one is the word O-N-E one. So you've got one, two, three, four ones in each corner superimposed on each one is another one. That's another four. So that's a total of eight in the middle is the word one o-n-e and it says in god we trust and then under that it says one so there's a total of nine on this side four on the other side for a total of 13 ones now here's the interesting thing if you take a five dollar bill or a ten dollar bill or a twenty dollar bill you will not find the numbers five or ten or twenty appearing 13 times it's only on the one dollar bill Furthermore, and for this you might want to get a magnifying glass out, if you look at the pyramid, count how many layers of stone there are in the pyramid. You won't be shocked to find out that there are 13 layers of stone. That's right, 13. 13 layers of stone. Wait, we're not finished. Um, above the pyramid are the words, Anuit coeptes which is in Latin, it means uh, God oversees our undertakings. God or providence watches over our enterprises. In other words, God is with us. And then in the middle, it says, in God we trust. But let's focus on the 13. On the other side from the pyramid, you'll find an eagle. And above the eagle's head are stars. How many stars? Well, now, don't just guess. You have to count because I might be setting you up to uh, in a trap. Uh, I might be trying to um, uh, catch you out over here in, a, in an ambush. Well, if you count the stars, there are 13 stars. So there's 13 ones and 13 layers of stone and 13 stars. You know this phrase I just told you about, Anuit coeptes, above the pyramid, um, providence watches over us, uh, watches over our enterprise or our activities, our undertakings. Uh, how many letters in the phrase Anuit coeptes? 13 letters. That's right, 13 letters. Um, if we um, look at the stars, 13 stars. On the eagle's breast is a shield with a number of stripes. How many stripes? 13 stripes. That's exactly right. And um, in the uh, bird's beak is a banner which reads E pluribus unum, out of many, one. That's a very important phrase. By the way, 13 letters there as well. You see, at a certain point, coincidence isn't a really good answer. And we're not even done yet. Because in the 
eagle's right talon, there are there is an olive branch. And this olive branch has how many leaves on it? Well, it's 13 leaves. And if you look really carefully, you'll see that the olive branch contains a number of olive fruits, little olive berries, whatever you call them. 13 of those as well. And in the eagle's left talon, you'll see a bunch of arrows. Count them. 13 arrows. I think you will agree that that is deliberate. The question is, what is all that about? Why 13? And if 13 is so very important, why do we not find 13 showing up on other bills, denominations, fives, tens, twenties, only 13 on the one? Well, I'm going to be telling you some surprising things. And I do know, of course, that uh, some of your reactions might well be, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. This is imagination. And all I suggest is that you just bear it in mind. Just listen to it. Think about it. And over the course of the next week or two, um, arrive at a conclusion. But don't jump to conclusions before all the data is in. As a matter of fact, as a general life lesson, don't make commitments or decisions before you have to. There is a right time to make a commitment. And uh, if, for instance, somebody walks up to you and uh, makes you a proposal, um, you know, uh, here is uh, here is a deal I'd like to suggest to you. A good answer is, I'd like to think about it. I'll get back to you. Would it be okay if I get back to you in two days' time? Uh, you don't have to decide prematurely. Now, there are times you don't have time to make a decision. Those occasions where there is no time, you are compelled to make a decision quickly. And then what you do is you hope that your instincts and your experiences and the internal structure, the spiritual schematic that I discussed last week uh, in your being is such that it leads you to the right decision on the occasions where you have to make a decision almost on instinct where you can't think it through. But uh, for today, um, you don't have to make a decision as to whether what I'm telling you is, is real or true or not. Just think about it. I have no vested interest in persuading you or selling you on, on this at all. Uh, it's informational and it has a lot to do with ancient Jewish wisdom because one of the things that we focus on on this show is discovering how the world really works. That's right. And uh, this is part of the way the world really works because money is really important much more important than people think. Uh, there is a tendency of people today to feel that somehow they are betraying their morality by thinking money is important. And we're going to be exploring all of that. And that's one of the reasons that I titled today's show, Holy Money. Right. Not as an expression as somebody might say, holy money. <laughs> no, not like that at all. Uh, factually, holy money. That is part of how the world really works. And what has this got to do with ancient Jewish wisdom? Well, it's it's very interesting. In uh, the Lord's language, in Hebrew, the, um, the, uh, the alphabet is such that every letter stands for a number. And that's one of the ways that we understand many of the key words 
in Hebrew, in the Lord's language. So just to give you an example, um, in English it would be as if we had A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, D equals 4, E equals 5, and so on and so forth, all the way to the 26th letter of the alphabet Z is 26. And then if certain important words crop up and we totaled up the value of the uh, of the letters, it should be emerge in some meaningful way so for instance let's imagine the word a year y-e-a-r well y is 25 e is 5 that's 30 a is 1 is 31 r is whatever it is i don't remember and if all that came out to be 365 wow wouldn't that be something but of course it doesn't and there's no reason why it should but in the Lord's language, things work very differently indeed. In the Lord's language, the Hebrew word for a year is the Hebrew word shana. So, for instance, the Jewish New Year is called Rosh Hashana, head of the year. So the word shana is made up of three letters, and the numerical value of the first letter is 300, the numerical value of the second letter is 50, and the numerical value of the last of the three letters of Shana or Year is 5, for a total of 355. Well, there you go. Isn't that... Be oh, wait a sec. Should have come out to be 365. That would have been interesting, right? But your rabbi, that would be me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, I'm ambushing you. Because, don't forget, this is the Lord's language. It's the Hebrew and the Hebrew calendar is largely lunar-based, not solar-based. And the Hebrew year is made up of 12 cycles of the moon. Now, the mean lunar period is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3 and a third seconds. And if you take 12 of those, why, you get 355 days. And by the way, this is why roughly every three years, the Hebrew calendar inserts an extra month, another 30 days, because 10 days, the difference between 365 of the solar uh, movement of the sun and 355, a lunar year, is about 10. And therefore, every three years, you're out of sync by about uh, 30 days, three times 10, and an extra month puts that right. And that's why for instance, uh, Jewish festivals, unlike Ramadan, which processes around the world, also based on a lunar cycle, but without a correction factor. Sometimes Ramadan's in summer, sometimes it's in winter. But for instance, Passover, which is um, coming up in uh, only about 10 days from the time I am recording this show, Passover is always going to fall in the spring. It might move by 10 days one year, 10 days uh, next year, it might be 10 days later, but it'll always be within that range. It'll never be more than um, 20 days, and I don't even think it gets 30 days out of sync. About 20 days is, is the most it moves around. So um, there we've got an example of how the, the numbers do work. Well, now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Hebrew word for one. That Hebrew word is Echad, another three-letter word, Aleph, Chet, Dalad. And what this tells us is that um, the, the number one, which is used a lot, for instance, one of the famous phrases in Judaism is, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And uh, I've taught on that verse at, at other times, particularly in Thought Tools, which is a weekly mailing that uh, goes out and, uh, and is something that you can uh, subscribe to on our website, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, if you wish to. And uh, at any rate, if you take the word Echad, it is uh, made up of an Aleph, which is one, a Chet, which is eight, and a Dalad, which is four. Eight and one and four, thirteen. So there is a a very important connection between one and thirteen. How old is a Jewish boy when he becomes one of his people? He becomes unified. Uni is one with thirteen, of course, and uh, it's not an accident. Thirteen is very associated with one. And so it is only on the $1 bill that we find all these 13s, because everybody used to know in the early days of the United States, people knew Hebrew, and 1 and 13 go together. When I say in the early days, people used to know Hebrew, uh, one of the um, uh, men who came over on the Mayflower uh, to form the uh, New England colony of, at Plymouth. Um, his name was William Bradford. He later became the second governor of the Plymouth colony. And his, in his famous book, which is still the most reliable history we have of that period, it's called History of the Plymouth Plantation. In the manuscript, and I have a copy, uh, I have a Xerox copy of the manuscript, uh, the first eight pages are in his own handwriting in Hebrew. And he writes in there, he said, if you ever wondered why I spent so much work trying to master the Lord's language, he says, and I'm, I'm quoting his words here, it's because this is the language in which God spoke to the patriarchs of old. And he said, how can anybody who is knowledgeable about the world not understand this fundamental language, which was the initial form of communication between God and uh, human beings? Well, uh, at this point, I'm sure some of you are saying, well, we better turn off. This is obviously a show about religion, and uh, that's not what we're interested. We're interested in finance, not faith. Uh, but bear with me, because we're not anywhere near done just yet. And um, it's um, important, I think, to, to, uh, to grasp that what's going on here is that the money and its connection to faith was clearly understood and that's why the words in god we trust were so important from before the foundation of the united states you find documents containing that phrase in god we trust but why did they put it on the currency rather than on the walls of of churches and i think the answer is that if you're in church then you know in god we trust but what people really need to remember is that the uh, the worth of money has a great deal to do with faith. There's a very good reason why no um, atheistic regime has ever successfully built a functioning economy, whether it's Cuba or the old Soviet Union. You might ask about China. China is, is an interesting situation. Uh, it, it may be a communist party that runs the show in China, but uh, that is not 
It's not as if communism and atheism have been inculcated into the Chinese people. As a matter of fact, there are more serious evangelical Christians in China than there are members of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, It is a country in which there are many, many serious Bible-believing Christians. And uh, Chinese culture in and of itself is also alien to atheism. But atheistic cultures where there is no in God we trust, they've never succeeded in making a currency, in making a money that actually has value. The greatest engine of prosperity in the history of the world has been the United States of America. On I've done a different topic, and uh, in a show um, a few months back, I, I did a show about the, um, the fact that America might be arriving at the end of its place in the sun and why I think that that is the case and what to do about it. I've covered in another show. I don't want to confuse matters by delving into that now. It's not it's not what we're dealing with. But um, what we are dealing with is that faith and finance interestingly connected in very important ways. Now, let's take a look at um, a few different countries, if you will. Let's look at Holland and Belgium. If you think about it, they're neighbors, they're right next door. So it's the same kind of people, if you like, the same racial stock, if you want to take that approach. Um, It's the same lack of natural resources, the same weather, uh, the same coastline uh, on the North Sea. Uh, There's really an English Channel as well. There's not a lot of difference between Holland and Belgium. And yet, Belgium is an economic basket case. They are basically the bureaucrats of Europe. It's not an accident that one of the headquarters of the European Economic Union is in Belgium. On the other hand, Holland, an economic powerhouse, a giant of finance. Have you heard of a company called Royal Dutch Shell? If you filled your car recently, you might have been shocked at what inflation has done to the price of gas, but uh, it's very possible you filled it with Shell Petroleum. Uh, That would be a Dutch company. Uh, You might use a shaver made by a company called Philips. That's a Dutch company and hundreds of other large and successful Dutch companies. What's the difference between Holland and Belgium? Have you thought about that? I'll give you another one to think about. Uh, North Ireland and South Ireland. Same same natural resources, same people, same everything. Uh, Northern Ireland, an economic powerhouse. It's it's where everything happens. It's where the Titanic was built in the in the great shipyards of Belfast. Not that uh, the Titanic's ultimate fate in 1912, I think, was in any way a uh, a, um, a discredit to the builders. It was built just fine, uh, but it was operated in in a tragic way. Um, But uh, everything happens in North Island. What's South Island? Oh, South Island's beautiful. It's a a lovely place to go and be a tourist. It's picturesque. It's a great place to go into an Irish pub and have a glass of Guinness if you happen to like uh, dark Irish beer stout, uh, which I don't particularly, but to each his own taste and uh, everybody can uh, enjoy South Island. You can also enjoy North Island, but if you're going on a business trip to Ireland, I would bet you're probably heading to North Island, not to South Island. South Island, not much going on economically. North Island, economically very effective. Look, I can, let me give you just one more example and then I'll, I'll, I'll drop it. Um, North Italy and South Italy. 
South Italy, it's like South Island. Great place to tour. My goodness, you want to you want to travel in in southern Italy. It's beautiful. Um, go to Sicily. Um, look at some of the the beautiful old towns there. Really quite lovely and absolutely delightful. Really nice to be at. But uh, it's not the same as North Italy. In North Italy, um, they've got a town called Modena. Uh, Modena is associated with cars like Ferrari and Lamborghini. Um, you've got the Fiat Motor Company. You've got all the shipbuilding going on in Genoa and La Spezia, uh, all North Italy. The whole fashion industry is Milan. All the money is being made in North Italy. In South Italy, oh, it's beautiful. It's lovely. But it's not where you go if you're on a business trip to Italy. You're going on a business trip to Italy. I know you may be stopping in Rome, but you're heading to the north. No question about it. Why? What is the difference? Again, same people, same nation, everything the same. And yet the economic performance is so different. Um, The difference is this. And again, there's been a lot of books written on trying to deal with this problem. It's a huge problem in economics. And everyone tries their hardest to find an explanation that makes sense. In the final analysis, there is only one explanation that makes sense. And that is that Belgium is Catholic. Holland is Protestant. North Ireland is Protestant. South Ireland is Catholic. South Italy, very Catholic. Northern Italy, much more Protestant. Again, closer to to Germany and to Austria. Uh, There are parts of Germany that are Catholic as well, of course. But in general, this is a distinction. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, I've been trying to tell you, faith really matters. That's how the world really works. Faith really matters. Why? What's the difference? Well, uh, the expert on this topic was a man who wrote a book about 100 years ago, and uh, his name was Max Weber, and he wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And uh, it's a remarkable book. It was only, he wrote it in about 1904 or 1905. It wasn't translated until 1930. But uh, I have a pretty good translation of it. And uh, I find the book absolutely fascinating. What he says is that, um, in general, religions tend to downplay this world matters religions tend to focus on heaven and the spirit and if you're very good you'll go to heaven and if or you know uh, you know and if you focus on money that's something there's something wrong with you and certainly if you love money that's a big problem and 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 by the way i I think loving money can be a big problem if i mean if you really do love money there's something weird um that doesn't make sense but loving the process of making money and loving to have money, I mean, how beautiful is it? You know, one of the big differences between having a few dollars and not is that if you have a few dollars, many, many, many of life's problems stop being problems. They turn into expenses. There are many problems you can make go away if you can hand over a credit card or write a check. Now, isn't that beautiful? I mean, do you really think God wants us to be stressed out of our minds? It, it, it doesn't work well. And so what's important to, to grasp here, I think, is that um, Judaism is completely different. 
And I'm, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I, I've told you before, I'm really not a theologian. You know what a theologian is? A theologian is somebody who studies and writes and researches what people think about God. I'm not interested in that. Life's too short to waste time reading on what people think about God. I'm much more interested in what God thinks about people. And for that, I have a book. It's called the Bible. And by the way, on my website, uh, we make this Bible available. This is what I call it Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible. And I really think every everyone should own one. I, I really do. Um, because there's some very beautiful things about this Bible. You go to RabbiDanielLappin.com, go to the store and look for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible. And, and what's so great about it is, number one, it's got the Hebrew and it's got the English. And uh, secondly, it has uh, the way the, the graphical layout of the Hebrew text is exactly the way you find it in the Torah. It's in accordance with the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom. And so very often a chapter, a division, uh, which was done by Bishop Stephen Langton, Archbishop Stephen Langton in, uh, I'm going to say the 13th century, thereabouts was when the chapter divisions were done. Uh, I don't know how much Hebrew he knew. I don't think a great deal, because very often he puts a chapter division right in the middle of a Hebrew paragraph. Now, in, an, in a regular Bible that doesn't have the divisions by paragraphs, you wouldn't know this and you couldn't tell. But if you look in this Bible, you can immediately see how topics are divided. And so if I'm going to be teaching uh, my son some Bible, then uh, I'm not going to say today we're going to do chapter three. I'm going to say today we're going to do these three paragraphs as they're laid out in the text. Anyways, uh, I tell you all of that because I really think you would greatly enjoy. If you don't have a Bible like this, um, get one. It's worthwhile, worthwhile having one. And uh, why do I mention this? Uh, did I lose my train of, of thought? Um, oh, I. so what I was, yeah, okay, fine, sorry. Uh, what I was saying is that I'm not a theologian, and so I don't really know a whole lot about how uh, Catholicism emerged in early Christianity out of Judaism. Uh, I mean, Jesus was obviously Jewish and knew much of the stuff, if not all the stuff we're talking about. Uh, and then from there, there, there was the Council of Nicaea and many, many things happened. And um, Catholicism moved away from its Jewish origins. Um, and some of the ways it moved as far, and there may be other things, I'm not very knowledgeable about this. Uh, but obviously the uh, the Lord's Day turned from Saturday to Sunday. Uh, and, and another one that changed is that um, uh, ordinary folks like us are not encouraged necessarily to study the Bible. It's not a major emphasis. But then it, along comes the year 1500 and the Protestant Reformation takes place. And by the way, just before that, for the first time, the Bible gets translated into other languages. A uh, hundred years later, 1611, the beautiful King James translation of the Bible takes place. But uh, what I want you to think about for a moment is not the way we live today, where today we live in a time where influential people, learned people, people who are regarded as influential in the culture are completely illiterate about the Bible. 
I mean, there are uh, so-called experts and scholars today in all kinds of topics who literally do not know if Leviticus is the name of a book in the Bible or the name of a man's aftershave lotion. I mean, really, it's it, people, there are a lot of, there is ignorance about the Bible today that simply wasn't around. Uh, up until, uh, I'm going to say, actually, you know, I always give about 1962. It's not, a, it's not a hard line in 1960, 64, no, but I say 1962 as a, as a fairly important demarcation point in modern American history when the country stepped onto the slippery slope of secularism. And uh, obviously, uh, it has a great deal to do with the economic decline of the United States of America. Um, and that's, again, something I spoke about in an earlier show. But for now, suffice it to say that Protestantism moved back towards Jewish sources in certain important ways. One of the most important, in my view, is that it re-emphasized study of the Bible. And so all of a sudden, Protestant Reformation comes, there are Bible translations, and don't forget what happened 50 years earlier, 1450. Johann Gutenberg invents something called the printing press. Look, that was probably, you know, you can think of it as the internet of its day, although it may well have had an even more profound impact on the world than the internet. Maybe. Uh, I've thought about it a lot. I don't have an answer on it, but it certainly was important. And all of a sudden, You've got translations of the Bible. Tyndale's translation has, has taken place. You've got other translations into German and French and most of the European languages. And you've got the printing press. And you've got the Protestant Reformation saying people should study the Bible. And guess what happens? You've got a launching pad of economic productivity. I know that what I'm telling you is is stretches your credulity. Some of you are saying, oh, I can't believe this. I mean, what's he going to come up with next? No, it's, it's, it's absolutely real. And that is the, uh, the closer one is to the Hebrew approach of the Bible, the more successful you are economically. Now, this applies, obviously, much more predictably to societies or communities or to countries than it does to a single individual. There are a lot of other factors we have to take into account and that I speak about in my books, Thou Shall Prosper and Business Secrets from the Bible. By the way, all available on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com or wherever you might buy your books. They're not sponsors of the show, so I'm not going to give them free advertising, but you probably know just who I mean. Uh, business Secrets from the Bible or Thou Shall Prosper, and I cover this in much more uh, detail, but, but here's the important thing. In this book, in the most important section of it called the Torah, this, is, this whole book is called a Tanakh, and uh, that means all the Hebrew scriptures right, from Genesis to Chronicles, but it's divided into three sections, the Torah, the prophets, and then the writings, and the writings include Proverbs and Psalms and, and everything else. In the first section, the Torah section, do you know that nowhere are we told about what happens after we go to heaven, after we die? Not mentioned, just not there. Well, then, doesn't God promise rewards to the faithful? Or oh, sure he does. He says 
that if you follow this book, you're going to have strong and successful families, you'll have great children, and you'll make a lot of money. That's right. Now, again, I have to stress that anything is more predictable in a group than an individual, right? The reason polling works is that you can poll, you can ask a lot of people how they're going to vote, and you can end up with a fairly reliable picture. But how about if you if you decide to ask 10 people, and then you go on television and say, well, we think the election is going to go this way, because the 10 people we asked divided up six in favor of candidate A and four in favor of candidate B. Nobody would pay attention to a poll like that. But if they speak to 15,000 people, now you're talking. And if it's 15,000 people who are representative of a country, well, you've got a fairly good uh, predictability. Not always, but it's generally better than you would have thought. And and so it is that if you live in a society, a group of people who do basically follow these principles and understand that it's not about the world to come, God is telling us how to live in this world and the benefits that flow to you in this world. And uh, Max Weber in the uh, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism would probably agree if he was sitting here and I said to him, Dr. Weber, Dr. Weber, uh, would you agree that a better title of your book might have been the Protestant, the, the Jewish ethic and the spirit of capitalism? He might well have agreed or he might have said well you know you certainly make a good point because everybody knows that jews are disproportionately good with money it doesn't mean they're no poor jews it doesn't mean most jews are rich it doesn't mean that at all but it does mean that in any group of um, financially successful people jews will be disproportionately represented and that's true in the united states and it's true in russia and it's true in the united kingdom it's true in france and in, in many countries where there are jewish populations australia for instance and it's it's been true throughout history uh, my entire book um, thou shall prosper starts off by explaining why that is and again you know if it's if it was because jews are circumcised many men might prefer poverty i get it but it has nothing to do with that it has to do with a set of principles understanding, well, how the world really works. That's what this is really all about. And so uh, that is something that uh, I want to convey to you and have you all understand really well. The uh, United States of America, yeah, the majority of uh, Christians during the early years in America were Protestants. And as a matter of fact, the Bible that the pilgrims brought over with them was a Bible by a, um, a Protestant clergyman in England who, who had to flee to Holland because there was a time that the Church of England was very hostile to Protestants. And um, uh, yeah, look, I know about religious bigotry. And, and yeah, there was a lot of anti-Protestant bigotry, no question about it. But uh, Henry Ainsworth wrote a most beautiful uh, annotation of the Bible. I have it in my shelf right behind me. Uh, I should have taken it out and, and prepared had it in front of me for the show, but I didn't. But Henry Ainsworth's annotated Bible is a Bible that uh, was very significant in the early years. And, um, and the Protestants were uh, used that Bible a great deal. And by the way, in all his notes 
at the bottom of the page, all his notes, I'd say about a third of them are Hebraic sources. And so this connection between America, this engine of prosperity, and ancient Jewish wisdom, very strong indeed. As a matter of fact, uh, when the um, uh, when the states were going to be adopting the newly formed constitution and to make themselves part of the United States of America, uh, there's a song that um, children learn if they're homeschool children, and that is uh, 13 Original Colonies. Now, I know that right now some of you are probably thinking, okay, well, now he's given the explanation for why there are 13 ones on the $1 bill. It's to commemorate the 13 colonies. Actually, it's not exactly like that. Let me explain why. Well, it turns out that um, uh, most of the colonies uh, became colonies fairly early on. And I'm just looking at some of the dates here. Uh, Delaware become, adopts a constitution, becomes a, a part of the United States, or at least uh, at the Constitution Convention decide they're going to. That's as early as 1787. Remember, the War of Independence began in 1776. And so by the time that was all over and the colonies had decided to form a new country. So Delaware, 1787, along with New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, and then comes Connecticut, Georgia, Maryland, all in 1788. And um, there's 12 of them that have adopted the Constitution. Why didn't they go ahead and declare the United States of America? Why were they waiting for Rhode Island? I mean, with all due respect to those of you from Rhode Island, it's a beautiful state, I get it, but was it that important? Smallest population, well, Delaware was small. Delaware was early. Uh, but why wait for Rhode Island? Why did they need 13? And the answer is because the founders were all Bible people. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln called them all ancient, uh, Old Testament Christians. Isn't that beautiful? They were Old Testament. They knew all of the stuff I'm talking about. And they, if they were building a unity, a one thing, e pluribus unuum, 13 letters, if they wanted to build out of many one, then they needed to start with 13. Really? Says who? Just because the Hebrew letter for one adds up to the number of 13? <laughs> well, it's a little more than that. Um, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about something rather interesting that occurs. And uh, that is, oh my goodness. Um, oh, I, you know what? I put it right here so I can uh, tell it to you. Um, okay, so what we have to look at is that um, in Genesis chapter 48, Genesis chapter 48, verse 5, and let me find this because I, uh, I want to actually read you the exact words if you don't mind. I'm sorry, I know this is awfully boring waiting for me to page through to find the place, but um, here it is. Okay, so here's the thing. By the way, if you are using my recommended Bible, you would turn to page 153. And uh, here's what's happening. Um, Joseph is in Egypt. He's running the show. He's got two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, his brothers and his father have all moved to Egypt and they've settled in the land of Goshen in Egypt. Everything's going fine. Jacob uh, gets old and uh, he's about to die. Before he dies, he wants to bless his sons. So he calls Joseph and, um, 
and here's what happens. Um, uh, and Israel, which is another name for Jacob, and I explain why that is. Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he says, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has blessed me with in this place. Joseph, uh, Jacob says, bring them, I pray, to me so I can bless them. And um, uh, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob says to Joseph, um, and he says, uh, God before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac did walk, the God has been my shepherd all my life long. In God we trust. Um, these two boys will be blessed. And um, and his father said, um, uh, where, where's the exact wording I want? And he said to him, um, uh, oh, this is verse 5. He says, page 153. He says, and your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you here in the land of Egypt before I came, they are now going to be my sons, just as Reuben and Simon, Reuven and Shimon, are my sons. A very important thing has happened. What Jacob has said is, Joseph, you are going to be replaced by your two sons. And sure enough, that's what happens. By the way, 40 years later, or more than that, when they finally leave Egypt, they go to the land of Israel, they divide, Joshua divides up the land of Israel, and there is no portion of Joseph. There's a portion of Ephraim and a portion of Manasseh. But look at the arithmetic. Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom, the second youngest, was Joseph. So Jacob's got 12 sons. Just do the arithmetic with me here. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. And he now says, Joseph, I'm putting you aside and I'm replacing you with your two sons. So 12 sons, Joseph, you're out. How many does that leave? 11. Now we're going to make your, your two sons, my sons, just like all my other sons, like Reuven and Shimon, 11 plus 2, 13. And my dear happy warriors, that is the moment at which the people of Israel begins because you do need 13 to start one. And that is what the founders of the United States of America were emulating back in 1787, 88, 89, 1790. And uh, it was, they had to wait for Rhode Island. They wanted 13 to form this new one. Now, this is, it's, it's beautiful, is it not? And, and it's very, very important because the principles that were going to be a part of this country which was to become the greatest engine of financial prosperity the world has ever seen based on all of these principles and sure enough they were in um, as uh, before the uh, foundation before america began in the 16 1690 uh, cotton mather was one of the great uh, Christian pastors and leaders in New England, Cotton Mather, M-A-T-H-E, a great, great scholar and uh, written some wonderful books. And by the way, I've read many of his sermons. They're breathtaking. What's also breathtaking is that people would sit quietly in church and listen to a long sermon, which might have taken an hour to deliver, maybe more. These sermons are stupendous. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, 1696, I think it was, Cotton Mather 
um, starts wearing one of these, a kippah or a yarmulke, and he starts calling himself rabbi, which I think is beautiful because he's acknowledging that they're going back to the original Hebraic sources of this country. It, it, it's a wonderful thing. And um, uh, there's, there's a great Irish historian um, whose name eludes me just for the moment, uh, who actually wrote the foundation stones of American democracy were cemented with Hebrew mortar. Well, I'm telling you things that used to be very, very well known, but today they're not well known. What I'm trying to do is help you understand this incredibly tight link between the economic success of the United States of America and its early tie to Hebraic sources or Protestant sources, as Max Weber put it, because so much of that was rooted in study of the Bible. And if you study the Bible, you begin to see that you are supposed to do good things. It's not just pray and it's not just worship and study the Bible. You're actually also supposed to be helping other people. Well, what's one of the best ways of helping other people? Is it by giving them money? As a matter of fact, no, because the danger of giving people money is stripping them of their dignity and independence. Helping somebody start their own business. Now, that is the ultimate in Jewish charity. And that is how they practiced. Um, if you want to do a lot of people a lot of good, what do you do? Well, one of the things you can do is start a business. Well, wait a second, isn't that selfish? I'm just trying to make money for me. No, because there are two ways of acquiring money, aren't there? One of them is with a 357 Magnum revolver, and you point it at somebody's head, and you say, your money or your life, or something along those lines. And then, you know, you do it to another person, and then another person after that. You come home at night, you said, honey, uh, how's your day been? She says, oh, grueling. How about yours? He says, well, you know, I, I've had a busy day. She said, how much did you take? And he says, yeah, I, I took $327 and loose change. She says, oh, great day. Notice she didn't say, how much money did you make today? She said, how much money did you take today? Because those are the two different ways of getting money. You can either get it by taking it, or you can get it by making it. In order to make money, you have to please other people, because you cannot force them to give you their money. Only the government can do that. It's called taxation. But otherwise, the rest of us, if we want to acquire money, we have to please people called our customers. And that's a good thing. Now, a lot of people try to denigrate that by saying, oh, well, you're just doing it to make money. The important thing is not the reason, it's the action. You think about it, right? Um, think about, you know, if I had two neighbors, one on either side, one neighbor loves me and, and can't wait to see me get to heaven. Um, but um, he's kind of tough to live with as a neighbor. He killed my cat, he kicks my kids, and he keyed my car, but he really loves me. The other neighbor is um, yeah, probably a little bit anti-Semitic, not too crazy about Jews. But boy, what a great neighbor he's been. Who do I love more? It's not a question. I don't care what's in somebody's mind. I care what they do. I care how they behave. That's again, by the way, from this book, that principle, that it's much more important how people behave 
than what they believe. The best thing is to have a set of beliefs that brings about the right kind of behavior. How beautiful is that? That's wonderful. That's what ideally we want to actually see. You know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Passover is coming right up and uh, we have a program on our website um, called um, How to experience the Passover experience fully and it's actually it's highlighted now before so go to rabbidaniellappin.com head over to the store and if you have any interest in the Passover experience one of the things I speak about in that is something very interesting listen to this Uh, this is mind-boggling people have been slaves right for hundreds of years Along comes Moses and God does the plagues and finally comes the the plague of darkness and then the plague of the firstborn and it's now time to leave. People are finally able to get out after 400 years, 210 of actual slavery. Uh, Think about this, you know, a a lawyer comes to, to you, you've been falsely imprisoned, you've been in prison for 15 years, lawyer walks in and says, great news, Uh, they found evidence that exonerates you, you're going to be able to get out of prison. You're thrilled, you can't wait, and you say, great, let's go, and the lawyer says, you know, hang on, I'm going to bring you a nice suit of clothes and a tie, so when you walk out tomorrow, there'll be photographs taken and you'll, you'll look nice. What would you say? Forget that! I don't care about how I look. I don't care about the suit. Just get me out of here now, today, this minute. Right? Okay, listen Listen to what goes on here. Um, in chapter 3, God speaks to Moses at the burning bush. And in my Bible, this is on page 171. And, um, uh, and God says in verse 21, listen, uh, when Pharaoh lets you go, and he will, by the time I'm through with him, he's going to let you go. Uh, I'm going to have you go around to everywhere in Egypt, and you've got to ask for money. You've got to take jewels and silver and gold and everything you can get, uh, because this is what you must take with you. Don't you think people would have said, come on, you're going to be taking care of us for 40 years in the desert? We don't need anything, right? You're going to feed us with a manna. Everything's going to be... What are we we going to use gold and silver for in the desert? And sure enough, later on in chapter 12, when they actually do leave, and, um, and absolutely, that's exactly what happens. Instead of running out as soon as the, 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 the clock struck 12 and it was time to leave, uh, the children of Israel did according to the word of Moshe, and they asked him, it's rhyme. One of the things I like about this Bible of mine, by the way, is that uh, it doesn't use the wrong words. It, trans- it, it uh, transliterates the Hebrew words, so you know the actual Hebrew sound. He's not Moses, he's Moshe. It's not Egypt, it's Mitzrayim. And it's really important because it helps you understand what the uh, meaning of Egypt is in Hebrew, which I cover. But at any rate, uh, what do they do? They uh, did exactly as Moshe asked, and they go to all the bank safety deposit boxes, and they go to uh, everywhere, and they literally take every negotiable instrument from Egypt. Bonds, stocks, gold, silver, currency, everything they take. God told them to do it. They did it. Even though it was delaying their departure significantly. Part of the understanding here is that, um, do you remember I said earlier that it's wonderful to be able to convert problems to expenses? It's great to make a problem go away by writing a check. Well, part of redemption is financial. Isn't that true? You think about your life, think about the lives of people you've known. 
isn't it true that if you're able to accumulate a few dollars you you walk differently you you've been redeemed you're free part of freedom is that and it's not an accident that again before their departure again they want to get out we've been slaves all this time come on god let's get out of here god says now first of all i need you to have a meal and i need your for the fathers to be at the meal now one of the things that slavery does is devastatingly destructive it destroys the family structure and uh it makes the father uh irrelevant right because the slave master feeds the slaves and so the role of the breadwinner traditionally the role of the husband and the father it's not needed in slavery and so for slavery to end and for freedom and redemption to happen you need families restructured and you need finance in place that's what i'm trying to explain here and so before they leave egypt god says you all got to sit down for a meal you've got to eat a special uh, lamb sacrifice i want you to eat all this but you can't do it until the dads have been brought home dads have to be at the table it's got to be a father-centric meal because it doesn't work in a matriarchy you, society just doesn't work so well and so it is in in many countries around the world including uh, the united kingdom where one can see it uh, painfully and visibly uh, and that is that um, as the government increased the principles of welfare and the government made more and more people dependent upon the state marriages collapse fathers vanish yeah because for a man the worst feeling in the world is impotence and redundancy is right alongside and that's one of the reasons unfortunately there have been many cases where sections of the united states have gone through terrible economic dislocation the steel belt the um, the, the falling of production in the northeast the moving of so much manufacturing to china in many instances uh, it left men redundant out of work and unfortunately uh, it, it's tragic but we know that that produced um, um, dysfunction in a very important area for men uh, it does and so slavery does that as well and so god says listen before you can be redeemed before you can enjoy freedom you got to go and get your money and you got to get the fathers back to the table back in place and uh the role of the dinner table by the way hugely important in this it's um it's very much a cultural thing it's it's uh it's very very sad that the parts of society that most desperately need to have family structure don't have family meals the family meal is hugely important in building family structure and building family structure is very important to build financial structure and vice versa it all goes together and it's all part of the same thing there's a limit to how much we can cover in the limited time of the rabbi daniel app and show each week but this at least i hope gives you something of a picture and that is faith really does matter it so happens that countries that uh, became protestant became more financially successful than countries that uh, were catholic it's uh, it doesn't mean by the way that that the protestant faith is better than the catholic faith and i'm not going into the theology of it uh, everybody has their faith and uh, and thank god i i happen to live in a country where the majority of people still do 
have a faith, whether it's Catholicism or Protestantism uh, or, uh, or the LDS Church, by the way. Same, same idea. It doesn't matter. Uh, to me, at any rate, I've got my faith. I don't want to be in a place where I'm told I have to adopt another faith. And that's always been part of American um, exceptionalism. It's changing now in the sense that I'm being forced to adopt the faith of secular fundamentalism. I am forced to affirm certain things that I know to be not true. And I just recently reread a brilliant essay by the uh, Russian exile Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And in 1974, after he moved to the United States, I think it was after he moved, he wrote an essay called Live Not By Lies. And part of uh, being forced to adopt woke principles and the principle of secular fundamentalism is to force me to violate my faith and to force me to live by lies. It's not something that uh, I, I want to do. And it worries me a great deal. And I think it's one of the signals of a decline in America's role on the world stage. That and many other things. I don't want to finish on, on that downer, obviously, uh, because it's not. Um, there is a reason that I speak of this as holy money. Holy money. That's right. Because if one understands that money is part of God's plan for human interaction. That's right, it is. You know, people often think that money was this evil creation, that God was uh, distracted by some problem in the Balkans. There's always trouble in the Balkans. And next time he looked back, he, oh no, look what those people have done. They've invented this terrible thing called money. Now, it's part of the culture, isn't it? I mean, it's sad and it's tragic, but um, people do think that way. Um, somebody once wrote to me and said, how do you justify wealth? How do I justify wealth? It doesn't need justification. How do you justify poverty? That's the problem. And it, it breaks my heart whenever I visit churches where I can tell that uh, they've bought into the idea that there's an equation that reads poverty equals virtue. No, it doesn't equal virtue. Not at all. Uh, does God want you to be rich? <laughs> no. Yeah, don't confuse me with prosperity gospel. No, I'm not saying God wants you to be rich, but I am saying that what God wants is for you to be blessed. Let me give you an example. Um, does God want you to have great, let me uh, try and say this in a discreet way because I know people uh, listen and watch the show with their children. Um, does God want you to uh, experience sensual ecstasy of the highest order? And the answer is that um, God hasn't actually shared that information with me. So I don't really know if he wants you to have great experiences of that kind. But here's what I do know. And that is that um, he wants each man to marry a woman. And he wants each woman to be married to a man. And he wants the man and the woman to form something called a marriage, which is a holy state. It's a union. And um, it's in that state that every report and every study indicates that men and women find the greatest sensual bliss. So why would it surprise me that a good and loving God would incentivize us to follow his instructions 
he says, I want you to marry. Not good for men to be alone. I want you to marry. Every man must marry a woman. Every woman must marry a man. And guess what? If you do that, you're not going to be sorry, provided you run that marriage on biblical lines. Now we look at money. Does God want you to be rich? Well, he hasn't actually shared that information with me. So I don't know if he wants you to be rich, but here's what I do know. He wants you and me to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs and the desires of all his other children. And it doesn't surprise me in the least that a good and loving boss incentivizes us to do his wishes with the great blessing of financial abundance and financial prosperity. That's right, because you can call it marketing, you can call it sales, and all of those things are important, but all they boil down to is the single basic idea. I've got to find ways to please other human beings. And when I've done that, guess what? They pay me for my services or the goods I supply, and I now enjoy the blessing of financial abundance, which is God's reward, not for me praying hard and not for me saying, God, please send me a Ferrari. No, it's for me obeying God's wishes to take care of the needs and the desires of all his other children. And so please make sure if you haven't yet downloaded the free ebook called The Holistic You, again at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, do so because that is the beginning of trying to master this fundamental principle of successful living. And that is your five F's have to be developed in a symmetrical way. And yes, I understand not everybody automatically has faith. Not everybody is religious. Not everyone has a relationship with God. But uh, not everybody is, is necessarily good at making friends. Some people tend to be not very gregarious. You know what? you got to change. you got to grow. you got to make yourself better in all of these areas. It's not necessarily easy, but it isn't insurmountably difficult either. To focus only on one is to ensure defeat. And so, my dear happy warriors, I bless you with a week of wonderful progress with your finances and with your faith and with your friendships and with your, um, uh, what did I leave? I do with your finances and your faith and your friendships and your fitness and your, um, what's the matter with me? <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm tired. Finances, your finances, your friendships, uh, your faith your fitness um, and your family. Oh my goodness, what's the matter? Sorry, I should, I should really get this edited out, but I won't. I'd rather get the information as quickly as possible. So a wonderful week with growth, with your family and your finances and your faith and your friendships and your physical fitness and onwards and upwards to another wonderful week. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.